Chapter 2 of The Christian Nurse and Her Mission in the Sick Room. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Noel Tacoma. The Christian Nurse and Her Mission in the Sick Room by Francois Javier Gautrelet. Translated by John Mason Neal. Chapter 2 of The Duty of Relations and Those Who Minister to the Sick to Assist Them to Die Well. Article 1. General Principles on the Precept of Charity. To understand thoroughly what is said of this duty, it must be remembered first that the charity due to our neighbor ought to extend to his body and his soul, and to embrace at one and the same time his temporal and eternal welfare. This welfare we ought to desire, and, as far as lies in our power, procure for him, for the love which we owe to our neighbor is like that which we have for ourselves, though it is not equal to it. There are, therefore, two kinds of needs to which our neighbor may be exposed, one regarding the body and the other the soul. They may be greater or less. These two kinds of needs may easily be united in the sick person, who, a prey to pain more or less severe, enfeebled by sickness, often overpowered by violent agony, is sometimes, in addition, by reason of his indigence, unsupplied with the most necessary remedies, while his soul, the slave of sin, bound by the chains of criminal habits, alien from and hostile to his God, thinks not of begging the pardon of his crimes from the mercy of his judge. If we consider corporal necessity only, and suppose it extreme, we are under an obligation to succor it, even though by doing so we incur serious inconvenience or subject ourselves to serious loss. But if the need be spiritual, if, for example, we suppose our neighbor in imminent danger of dying in a state of sin and so being lost forever, we ought not to hesitate in exposing our lives to save him, for the loss of our temporal life is far inferior in value to the spiritual life, the eternal salvation of our neighbor." The one, then, if needs be, must be sacrificed to the other. If the danger be not extreme, the obligation of succoring our neighbor is less peremptory, and we are not bound to such sacrifices. But it always exists, proportioned in its rigor and exigency to the nature and extent of that necessity. From these principles we conclude as follows. Article 2. Of the Obligation Common to All Men, with Respect to the Sick. The obligation of succoring the poor and sick, like that of assisting the needy, is incumbent on all men, and each ought, according to the condition and the circumstances in which he is placed, to lend bodily and spiritual assistance to his brother. For all, united in the bonds of charity, should bear a reciprocal love to each other, as having the same origin and the same end, and as members of one and the same body." Now this love cannot be sincere without inspiring in those who are animated by it the desire of relieving the unhappy. If one member suffers, St. Paul says, all the members suffer with it. So ought it to be with you who all compose but one body, of which Christ is the head. God, said the prophet, gave every man commandment concerning his neighbor. Thus, to save the temporal life of any, or to extricate him from mortal danger, what sacrifices are there not made daily? Consequently, what ought we not to do to save the life of his soul, and to snatch him from the fearful evil which threatens him? 
when laid by sickness on his bed of suffering, he finds himself face to face with eternity. Everyone, therefore, is commanded to relieve the sick with alms proportioned to his means, for it is to the poorest, when the scourge of sickness is added to that of poverty, that the double evil becomes in a certain sort irremediable from the impossibility for the sick man to provide for his wants. It is also obligatory upon all, in virtue of the same precept of charity, to interest themselves in the salvation of the sick man's soul. If we ought to pray for all men, we ought especially to pray for the sick who have a special need of support in their sufferings. Let us pray, says the church, for the afflicted. O Ramus pro afflictus. Article 3. Of the special obligation which exists for those whose duty it is to take care of the sick. The obligation of helping the sick to die well is more especially imposed on those who from office or devotion are employed in assisting them in their sickness. Let us remember what has just been said of the precept of charity, especially in cases of extreme necessity, and transport ourselves in thought to the midst of one of these immense halls which appear to be the assembling places of all kinds of sickness, and where are heard so often the plaintive cries of suffering and the groans of the dying. If we take account of the ignorance of some, the ill-will of others, and the great difficulty many find in fitly preparing themselves to appear before God, are we not likely to meet with some cases of extreme necessity and imminent danger of damnation among those dying sinners, whereby holy and industrious zeal and the tact of ingenious charity their eyes might be opened to the misery that awaits them, and the depth of the abyss into which they are on the point of falling, where every day, and if the hospitals are large many times in the day, some one among those unfortunates is set before the tribunal of eternity, and the final sentence which decides his fate goes forth from the supreme judge? What is that sentence? You who have just received his last sigh and closed his eyes know not, but at more there where you stand, before you, the cause has been pleaded, the tribunal prepared, the judge present, the sentence pronounced. You have assisted at the judgment of this person without thinking of it and without perceiving it. But have you been uninterested in the sentence that has just been passed? Certainly not, if you have understood your duty. Perhaps at this moment that soul, released from its earthly prison, has received the assurance of its eternal happiness, and it is to you and to your charity that it is owing. I ask, can there exist on this earth a more solemn position, a more sublime vocation, an employment which has more tremendous consequences? But do not deceive yourselves. The greater the utility, the importance, and the solemnity of your ministry to the sick, the more serious, the more rigorous are the obligations which it imposes on you. For since the eternal fate of the soul depends on the disposition in which the man dies, and you are able to exert so salutary and certain an influence over these dispositions, we conclude that it is you, so to speak, who decide his future destiny. Heaven and hell are in a measure put in your hands, and you are charged with a choice for the dying man of one or other of these two different eternities. I do not wish to exaggerate. I know there are some patients who will resist all the efforts of your zeal, but I would impress upon you 
the duty of then exercising your charity and doing all in your power to save a soul on the point of being lost. I will here quote Sister Bernard's words on this subject, speaking to a priest, Curum exageris non curationum. What is required of you is not the recovery, but the treatment of the sick. The salvation of the soul, indeed, does not depend only on your care. It is necessary for the sick person to cooperate with you. But how large a share ought you not to have in it? How earnest should be your prayers, and how fervently should your vows ascend for this unfortunate sinner? Since for his salvation, you ought to be ready to sacrifice even your life, if that were necessary, alarmed at the extent of your obligations and the responsibility attached to your vocation, you will perhaps say that in entering the religious life and dedicating yourself to the service of the sick, you had not anticipated taking so heavy a burden upon yourself, that you have only looked forward in the employments that have been entrusted to you, to the happiness of serving Christ's suffering members, with the hope of hearing one day from his blessed lips that so comforting sentence which he will pronounce at the last day to those who have ministered to his sick and unhappy brethren. But I reply that neither your community nor you have any right thus to restrict your obligations. It is not so much the body as the soul that requires your care. The spiritual welfare of your patients excites your anxiety more keenly than their temporal good. I appeal to your rules, or rather, I appeal to your heart and to your feelings. I do not need any other proof. You will find in yourselves the answer to your own objections. Further, I maintain that though this might have been your intention in consecrating yourselves to this painful ministry, you cannot in any way escape from the obligation it imposes upon you. Founded on the precept of charity, which is binding upon everyone, and resulting in the present circumstances, from the necessity of your neighbor, whose salvation is at stake, this obligation falls upon you with all its weight. Your very position imposes it upon you. Your vocation has no other effect than that of causing you to accept this position of your own free will, and thus giving another merit to the accomplishment of a duty, which is in itself still freer and more voluntary. For if the thought of the responsibility attached to your vocation makes it more difficult and less attractive, I would say that he for whose love you have embraced this estate will for your love and for his own sake and for his own goodness sake grant you those particular graces which will help you to fulfill your obligations worthily. I would add that if your vocation in this view sets before you great difficulties, it also offers you great consolations. You ought to think yourself happy in being able to contribute so effectively to the salvation of souls. And remember that the more we give to God, the more we receive from Him. The greater the dangers to which we expose ourselves for His glory, the more abundant are the graces which He has promised to us here, and the brighter the crown which He has prepared for us in heaven. Finally, if the thought of our obligations is sufficient to inspire us with fear, the consideration of our advantages, which we shall enumerate in the following chapter, is well calculated to support and encourage a heart that loves God and is desirous of the salvation of its brethren. Article 4. The Particular Obligation of Relations in This Matter The obligation of assisting the sick to die holily is still more rigidly imposed on parents with regard to their children and on children with respect to their parents. 
The ties of blood must be very much regarded. They must be very sacred in the eyes of God, since He has given us so explicit a commandment to love our parents. And in order to ensure the fulfillment of this precept, He has sanctioned it by such great promises and such severe punishments. Would He so have acted if these ties were to be limited by uniting us only in this world? No, doubtless. But in the designs of God, our relationship in this world ought to have a very great influence over our eternal destinies. Our love is given not as much to the body as to the soul, and consequently we should be much more solicitous in procuring the spiritual welfare of those whom we love than their temporal advantage of which death will so speedily deprive them. Nevertheless, judging by the conduct of the greater part of mankind, would it not be said that everything ended with this life, and that death forever broke the ties which bind us to our relations and friends? That such may be the sentiments and the conduct of those unfortunate persons who, deprived of the light of faith, are ignorant of any other life than this passing existence, I can easily believe. But that we who are blessed with the divine light of the gospel— and who, according to St. Paul's expression, are not like those miserable people without hope for the future. We who believe in a happy or unhappy eternity, is it possible that we should be indifferent on a question of so much importance with regard to those who are dear to us, and that confining our cares to a body whose dissolution is inevitable, we never dream of securing the fate of the soul which is about to appear before its God? What? Fathers and mothers, you love your children. You know that in a few days, it may be in a few hours, the final sentence which will decide their happiness or their misery forever will be pronounced by a God infinitely just and holy, as he is infinitely merciful. And you do not seek to secure them a favorable sentence. And you who profess for the authors of your existence such a tender affection, so sincere a devotion, confined by the narrow limits of time, you do not raise the veil which hides eternity from your eyes? You do not think of snatching those whom you so tenderly love from endless and measureless evils, of procuring for them the possession of treasures infinite in themselves and in their duration? Either cease to say you love them, or show your love by truer and more solid proofs. To come to something more positive, I say that if parents are obliged, under pain of mortal sin, to provide their children with a necessary subsistence, they are still more rigorously bound to procure for them, especially in sickness, necessary support for the life of their souls. If it is a parent's duty to provide according to their ability for the temporal interests of those whom God has committed to their care by love, it is a still more sacred duty to take in hand their spiritual interests. Finally, if it is a great sin for a father and mother not to bring up their children in a Christian manner, not to keep them from vice, and to abandon them to the corruptions of their heart and the contagion of bad example, how shall they be excused for allowing them to die in God's displeasure, and sacrificing them as unfortunate victims to the fury of devils more greedy for their perdition than their parents are careful for their salvation? How especially applicable to these circumstances is that saying of St. Paul, But if any provide not for his own, and specially for those of his own house, he has denied the faith, and is worse than an infidel. In like manner, if children are compelled, under pain of mortal sin, to provide as far as lies in their power for the wants of their indigent parents, how much more are they bound to do so when those parents are a prey to the sufferings of sickness? 
and if it is their duty to succor them in that which regards their temporal welfare and their bodily health how much more are they not bound to do for that which concerns the eternal interests of their soul parents forget not then the intimate bonds which unite you to your children whom you have brought into the world you have given them temporal life endeavor to procure for them eternal life and after having borne them into this veil of tears teach them on the way to heaven whatever cause of displeasure they may have given you or the griefs they may have occasioned you during their life all must be pardoned in the critical circumstances of sickness and in the presence of death let paternal tenderness be reawakened that filial piety may be reanimated in the face of eternity all should be forgotten and the past should only be remembered in order to find new motives for lavishing your solicitude on those whose need perhaps is all the more pressing as they have made themselves unworthy of it fathers and mothers listen to the dictate of your hearts and not to your resentments however well founded they may appear to you honor your parents in their sickness you who owe to them your life and who have been to them the object of so many cares of so much solicitude and love do not forget that one day you will yourselves need the attentions which you now lavish upon them and by the loving cares with which you surround their last moments merit to receive one day the help which is so necessary for a holy and a happy death take heed you are not discouraged by the length of the illness and by the infirmities which they have contracted perhaps in working for you take heed lest you suffer yourselves to be wearied by the ill-humour the caprice the unreasonable exactions of a father or mother whose advanced age has perhaps deprived them of freedom of action take heed that their failings their crimes even if they have any hinder not the devotion of your service the less worthy they appear to you of your labors the more pressing is their need for your care the more truly useful you may be in bringing them back to better feelings by your gentleness your patience your respect and the delicate attentions of your unwearying love parents and children whoever you are all whose position calls you to succor the members of your family in their sickness do not wait too long in giving notice to the priest who has the confidence of the sick person in taking care of the body care still more for the soul and do not rest till you have assured its eternal interests at least in so far as lies in your power do not suffer a false tenderness to close your lips when so many urgent reasons make it your duty to let them know the truth do not dissimulate through a false discretion a danger that is too real and when the life of the body is so seriously threatened do not compromise the infinitely more precious life of the soul by keeping up in the sick person false hopes which you yourselves do not entertain this is not charity it is cruelty this is not loving it is hating this is not serving our relations it is betraying those who are the object of this misconceived affection do not delay to send for a physician who by his experience and his religious principles merits your confidence the evil taken in time and early combated may yield to the first remedies later it may perhaps be impossible to stay its sad progress take heed lest the expenses occasioned by a lengthened sickness and costly remedies induce you to desire the death of the sick person fulfil your duty god will fulfil his promise and you will never regret the sacrifices you have made to obey him 
These sicknesses will be useful to your relations. They will be useful to yourselves. For in the designs of the Lord they may procure for you inappreciable advantages, as we shall presently see more at length. End of chapter 2